Well, good morning. It's a great joy and incredible privilege to open up God's Word this morning. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word that you have not left us in the dark about how to relate to you. And may the challenge of Hebrews um, speak into our lives this morning. May your Holy Spirit change us and shape us so that we become more like you and less like the world so that we might minister more effectively to the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the last chapter of Hebrews. Uh, What a journey it has been. These original recipients had been under great pressure to return to Judaism and to drop Jesus. Where are we pressured? That's certainly not our pressure. I recently was informed about a New York Times columnist, David Brooks, who was writing about his own moral journey and spiritual awakening. He gives expression very sharply to one of the substantial pressures that we face as believers in our world today to lead us to stop looking at Jesus. He writes... For six decades, the worship of self has been the central preoccupation of our culture. Moulding the self, investing in the self, expressing the self. David Brooks' conclusion was that this has been a catastrophe. But how has Hebrews responded to the pressures for believers to drop Jesus. How do we respond to these pressures? Well, over and over again, we have been challenged to see that the Lord Jesus is the substantial fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of God. Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the high priests. He's better than temple sacrifices. He is better than the ancient saints. Jesus brings us to the best destination, the city of the living God. No wonder we're encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus as we run our own race of faith. But how will this unknown pastor bring his challenging letter to a close? What will Christian perseverance look like in practice? Having lifted up the great Jesus, how will the author bring his letter home? Well, it should be no surprise to us that he follows the pattern of Jesus himself. In the New Testament, it's very interesting that believers are never called followers. The word was available in the ancient language, but no, it's always following. We are to follow Jesus. It's a verb. Indeed, the Bible consistently and persistently calls on the people of God to be verbs, not nouns, in the way we follow Jesus. Ask yourself right now, how would you best be described as a noun Christian or a verb Christian? Do we simply identify with Jesus or are we actually doing the things that Jesus does? Hebrews 13, 1 to 8 communicates that knowing Jesus is meaningless if it doesn't, in very practical ways, 
shape the way we live in relationship with others. Despite COVID-19, Christians are to live their lives in touch with the world. There can be no spiritual social distancing, no spiritual self-isolation. The gospel calls us to come out of the world to Jesus in order that we will be more effective in going back into the world for Jesus. Hebrews 13, 1-8 provides concrete, practical answers to the following questions. What does the thankfulness and acceptable worship of Hebrews 12, 28 look like? How do we go on and finish the race of faith? What does keeping our eyes on Jesus actually look like? Well, the NRL and AFL finals have begun and the coaches before each game rally the troops. This is a do or die game. Miss out on this game and you've missed out for the season. They try to uplift and encourage their players to go on the field with great positivity. Now, if I was a coach, I'd actually get them to sing their team song before they went on the field because they're uplifting songs and what are they? They're winner songs. What better way to go onto the field for a final than to be feeling a winner? Now, what's amazing about Hebrews 12 is that in 12 chapters, over and over again, we've seen with Jesus that we are winners. So having provided the winner song in Hebrews 1 to 12, the Holy Spirit concludes this letter by providing a call to arms, a call to be Jesus-like in all of our relationships. This covers relationships in the family of God and relationships in the fallen world. Let's look at the first, living in the family of God, verses 1 and 7 and 8. Now, Australians tend to pride themselves on being ruggedly independent. She'll be right, mate, could almost be a catch cry, national catch cry. Hence, programs like Are You OK? have surfaced as a corrective. These programs encourage us Aussies to be willing to admit that we aren't OK. They encourage us to ask if people are OK. Jesus has called us into a community that is marked by loving interdependence. Hebrews 13 makes it abundantly clear that all believers, even leaders, are in mutually supportive relationships. We don't sing the old Simon and Garfunkel hit, I am a rock, I am an island. No, we sing Christ is the rock. And we are a family. So what is to mark the Christian family? Well, we're to have open hearts. We're to love the family. Verse 1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The word for love here is Philadelphia. Literally, love brethren. The city in America called Philadelphia is known for the city of brotherly love. So this is an in-house love. Love, other person-centered, selfless care is to be the distinguishing and persistent mark of the Christian family. Note, it says 
keep on loving. This requires application, which can easily fall away. John Calvin, the great 13th, uh, 16th century reformer, wrote, Nothing evaporates more easily than love when everybody looks to himself more than others. So what does looking to others and not ourselves look like today? Well, we mustn't again let COVID-19 be an excuse for not actively and continuously loving our Christian family. It's been brought home to me in the past two weeks as I've had the privilege of serving at Fig Tree Anglican in a locum role two days a week, um, mainly making pastoral calls to people who may need some encouragement and support. And it's really been brought home to me how significant is reaching out to others in very simple ways and how valuable this ministry is. Just a call, a short chat of inquiry as to how someone is travelling, a willingness to listen and respond, a brief prayer or the sharing of a biblical truth can encourage a sister or brother in Christ who may currently be struggling. And if we're not already doing this, we can do this for the family. Think of people you haven't seen for a while, someone you know who's struggling in some way. If you're able, make a call, even a video chat if you know how, so they might actually see a compassionate and known face. How else can we keep on loving one another? Arrange to go for a walk while maintaining social distancing. Offer to go shopping, transport someone to an appointment, visit people in hospital, provide or go out for a meal with someone, reinvigorate the lost art of letter writing, which speaks to people you care if you take the time to write a letter. Be transparent about your own struggles and allow others to minister to you. Remember, we're not rocks or islands. We're family. Yes, our time is precious, but our family is more precious. So stop and ask, in terms of keeping on loving each other, are we noun Christians or verb Christians? Are we family in name only or in practice? So first we open our hearts and then we're told at the end of this passage to open our memories to imitate our leaders, verses 7 to 8. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. These words actually follow hot on the heels of the challenges and temptations that come our way of living in a fallen world, noted in verses 2 and 6, which we'll come to in a moment. It therefore makes perfect sense that we're now encouraged to recall those who have lived in the fallen world so faithfully. We're to remember leaders. These are probably the people in the first instance who brought the gospel to the Hebrew Christians that led to their faith and who continued to teach them. Some now may have passed away naturally, others may have been martyred. These were people whose message and manner of life was a seamless piece of cloth. Notice the focus of the remembering, the outcome of their way of life. 
What did their life produce is the important question to answer. These leaders were verb Christians. They lived what they preached. They were people worthy of imitation. Now I'm sure you know that imitation can be a greatest form of encouragement or embarrassment. Because what your children or grandchildren watch you doing has the potential to bring you praise or punishment. Have you ever heard your children or grandchildren abusing other drivers as you're driving your car? Where did they get that from? On other occasions, you can hear good things in the back seat. I still remember with great joy uh, my grandson um, asking his auntie in the back seat, do you love God? <laughs> and there was a pregnant pause for a moment. <laughs> Finally, there was a little yes. And he went on to say, everyone is to love God. What joy that brought to me. So remember, imitation can be the greatest form of embarrassment or the greatest form of encouragement. To all those of us involved in Bible teaching role in our church, will the imitation of your life in the community you oversee have an outcome which honours or brings shame to Jesus? Remember, dear sisters and brothers, that everything we do has the potential to build a bridge or raise a barrier to Jesus. In Hebrews 11, the great heroes of faith were rolled out as models of faith. But in Hebrews 12, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, is presented as the one we should focus our eyes upon. So also in this text, we move from our role model pastors to the numero uno, the number one pastor, Jesus, whose consistency is legendary. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. Our leaders will come and go and sometimes they fail. I know that because I'm one of them. And I fail, I make mistakes. But Jesus always remains the same. He's always with us as this text so clearly declares. Jesus is always contemporary. There are people today who laugh at the concept that a 2,000-year-old Messiah would have anything to say to a sophisticated and complex society like ours. But the scriptures and my personal experience in ministry tell me there is nothing further from the truth. Jesus is relevant to every generation, past, present and future. All wisdom, grace and compassion are found in Christ. He's both the model and message of faith par excellence. And just as Jesus is, our living faith ought to be the same yesterday, today and forever. So I ask again, are you best described as a noun or verb Christian? Well, we've explored living in the family of God now we need to turn to living in the fallen world. The New Testament consistently calls upon believers to have a face to the world. And the writer continues that pattern. Just as we're not islands in the family of God, we can't be islands in a fallen world. We cannot live isolated from a fallen and fractured society. 
We need to be engaged with the world, but not enmeshed or entangled in the world. Remember, everything we do does have the potential to build a bridge or raise a barrier to Jesus. How we use our homes, how we uh, respond to the oppressed, how we value marriage and money will commend or condemn Jesus to those still on the outside looking in on our faith community. Let's look at each of those elements in turn so that we might worship God with each. Firstly, we'd have open homes. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Literally, the word hospitality means love of stranger. Hospitality is a practical act of love. I suspect that we're probably better, if you're anything like me, at inviting family and friends to our homes for hospitality. We would really love it if all of our churches had signs on them. All welcome. How comfortable would we be pasting the same sign up on our homes? All welcome. All strangers are welcome here. But who are the strangers we can open our homes and hearts to that are referred to here? Are they new people at church? Certainly. New people in the, in the workforce? New people in our neighbourhood? What about overseas students, asylum seekers, refugees? What about the homeless, the bereaved, the disadvantaged, the troubles? The divorced, the smokers? Former prisoners? Being invited to people's homes is not as common as it once was. Yet it needs to be part of the Christian's DNA. How does the following question impact you? Have you had a stranger or unchurched person in your family, in your home, this past year? My concern, by the way, is not to make you feel guilty, but to urge us to obey the Lord Jesus in this ministry we're called to. The true motivation for hospitality isn't guilt, it's for love of strangers. It's rather found in verse 28. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let us be thankful and worship God acceptably. We've been blessed off our socks. Let's pass that blessing on. But there can be surprising and special blessings flowing from a ministry of loving strangers. It's no surprise that in a letter rich with Old Testament truths, that the background to the practical application of this letter is also rooted in the Old Testament. Certainly the passage here that's in mind is almost certainly the story of Abraham and Sarah, who opened up their home to three strangers who turned out to be the Lord and two angels. As a result of this time of hospitality, they received a message from God and great promises of blessing. What Abraham and Sarah experienced was the wonder of a heavenly encounter and messages of encouragement. Now, I can't say that uh, Sue and I have ever entertained angels unawares in our home 
But I can assure you that we've certainly been blessed and received messages from God through people we've had in our homes. Words of encouragement and words of um, joy and delight. God has spoken through the strangers who we've had in our home. So let us never let the wonderful FAC Manor House and Manor Van Ministries be an excuse for us not to exercise the same sort of hospitality in our own homes. I was rebuked by this passage because in my last parish, St Matthew's West Pennant Hills, we had a family called the Buns who practiced this. Every Sunday they would come to church with a bowl of soup made or a large casserole so they could invite friends or sorry new people home after church they came prepared every Sunday and we started that ministry in our church and Sue and I need to get back to it because we've got out of that practice it doesn't have to break the bank or be a burden but a way of extending the generosity of Jesus to newcomers and strangers well Sue and I plan to get back to this but if I come and ask you to our home it's not that you look strange it's rather that we want to get to know you better so in terms of hospitality are we going to be described as noun or verb Christians so we open our home and then we're charged to open our memory again verse 3 continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering it's interesting how our writer moves from those who um, we, can, we can invite to our home to those who can't visit us, who need visiting, the prisoner and the mistreated. Almost certainly here, this refers to Christians who are being severely persecuted by a fallen world. To visit persecuted believers will certainly testify to the depths of love we have for our spiritual family. As Jesus said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Authentic love identifies those who suffer. We remember them as we would want to be remembered were we in their shoes. And the watching world will see how we live and love them. Now to be in prison or mistreated is to be oppressed and often invisible. Oppression comes in many forms. Notice the prison language we've used in COVID-19. Lockdown, isolation, confinement, restriction of freedoms. People disadvantaged by their physical, intellectual, relational and um, emotional circumstances may experience a form of oppression and feel imprisoned. The bereaved and abused and lonely experience a prison of heartache and brokenness. And sadly, due to domestic violence, many families are in a jail of fear, shame and confusion. Asylum seekers and refugees are confined because of limited language and cultural confusion. Will we remember them? To remember is to exercise compassion. It's to pray. It's to visit. It's to be generous with time and resources. It's to be kind and attentive. 
listening to the heartache of the oppressed and speaking into them words of grace and compassion. We can't be a generation whose minds are closed to anyone we can't see. And here we recall what we learned from our earlier series in James. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from pollution. So in terms of the oppressed, are we going to be remembered as verb or noun Christians, doers of the word or hearers only? So we have open homes and open memories. Finally, we open our eyes to the dangers of living in a fallen world. Firstly, we avoid these world's temptations. If you've ever watched Bondi Rescue, you'll notice how the lifesavers are regularly down at what they call um, backpackers' rip, where unwitting people go swimming where they shouldn't. See, the water looks just as good as anywhere else, but it's filled with dangers and, and uh, that could lead to drowning. Well, Hebrews 13, 4-6 acts like a lifesaver, providing powerful warnings about two fallen world pleasure offerings, which can suck believers into an ocean of spiritual danger and potential drowning. We'll look at each in turn. Firstly, open our eyes to the dangers of sexual immorality. Verse 4, marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. In a fallen world where divorce, pornography and sexual licence still scar the social landscape, this text is stingingly relevant. It stings because Christian history and, and marriage and sexual failure is not particularly impressive. Even first century Christians needed to hear this charge to honour marriage and avoid sexual immorality in all its forms. You and I live in a sensually driven society, a world where sexual pleasure is worshipped. It can be watched so easily with the click of a switch of a TV or the click of a mouse on a computer. It's frightening that the average age now in Australia of first exposure to pornography is 10 years of age. This does not bode well for the future and sanctity of marriage. In such a world, Christians need to stand up and be counted rather than being sucked into society's vortex of immorality. Thriving, holy, joyful, sexually healthy marriages are where we start putting the brakes on immorality in a fallen society. Christian marriages are to be the flagship of biblical God-honouring morality and ought to be a powerful witness to a world that often gets marriage and morality wrong. However, good marriages don't just happen. Hence this call to go on and persevere in marriage. Marriages require application, commitment, forgiveness and church support and sometimes professional counselling. Our current climate means it's all too easy for overworked and preoccupied spouses to take each other for granted. Parents, please note that our children will feel most loved not when we indulge them but when they see their mum and dad loving each other. 
with authentic love. It's in the home where children should learn how their God-given sexuality should be expressed in holiness and mutuality within the faithful union of their dad and mum. And single people can also honour marriage by remaining celibate and providing support to the marriages of their friends as their married friends provide support and fellowship and encouragement to them. So in the area of sexual immorality, will we be remembered as verb or noun Christians? So we open our eyes and beware sexual immorality. Secondly, we open our eyes and beware loving money. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Let me be perfectly clear. Money and material things are morally neutral. It's how we relate to them that makes them problematic. See, it says, keep your lives free from the love of money. So how would you and I currently describe our relationship to worldly goods and wealth? Are we marked by greediness or gratefulness? Do we see ourselves as owners or stewards? Do we see our wealth as merited or gifted? Are we possessed by our possessions or are we possessed by God? Are we known for consuming or contributing? Are we identified as covetous or content? These are the questions this scripture raises for us. Covetousness, of course, is never being satisfied with what you have. It's a constant and perpetual seeking for more and more. Whereas contentment is not actually having what you want. It's wanting only what you've been given by God. Christians build their lives on the person and promises of God, not their bank balances which our writer explains by quoting Deuteronomy 31 and Psalm 118. In a world where stock markets crash, layoffs occur, JobKeeper payments and superannuation funds shrink, God speaks, I will never, never under any circumstances ever leave or forsake you. What an amazing promise. So don't love money, love and be content with God. Keep free from making the increase of our portfolio our purpose. Rather, let our purpose be to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Let's recognise that covetous and greed are born out of doubting God's faithfulness, whereas contentment and gratitude are born out of God's faithfulness. So we can join the psalmist in declaring to all, even our persecutors and naysayers, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can the immortals do to me? Dear sisters and brothers, listen attentively to this challenge from Raymond Brown. Selfish ambition can be the most destructive force in the world. Dominated by greed, it pays little attention to the needs of others, the will of God, or even personal health. 
In a selfishly ambitious society, Christian contentment is a quality of great evangelistic value. It reminds others that there's more to life than transitory success. And the more is found in Jesus, as Hebrews has told us over and over again. So, my friends, in terms of not loving money, will we be known as noun or verb Christians? Hearers only or doers of the word? Let me conclude. This chapter reminds us that Christianity isn't interested in religion, understood as either ritual or doctrine, without responsibility. It's about living 24-7 for Jesus with both the family of God and in the fallen world. It's about continuing to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and running the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And may our living faith also be the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Consistency of witness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are broken people. We are so grateful that you have sent Jesus to make us whole. We thank you for the power of the gospel to transform us and shape us. We thank you that Jesus is indeed our great example. Help us to follow him faithfully day by day. Help us never to be content to simply identify with Jesus but to be following him. May we make a difference to our world by the way we live. And may we encourage our brothers who are struggling and our sisters May we be faithful always in our witness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.